know it's working. So we've just watched Armed and Deadly, mm. Channel 5. That was on Netflix, wasn't it? It's on Netflix now. You're featured in it. Yeah. How soon had you been released from prison and had threats on your life when you did that? No, I was released from prison in 2016, weren't I? 216. And then my licence conditions finished on December the 21st, 217. Yeah. So I went back into Liverpool and within a space of four months I had an attempt on my life by the Kenyan cartel basically. Six weeks after that they come back to try and do it again. There was another there was another situation. But that's it then. I got contacted by this production team who initially was working for Channel 5 and done a documentary. And you, saw, and you saw us filming on the Grisdale, you said one of these attempts on your life, people came there, did they? Well, that's where it happened, yeah. That's where all the attempts have happened on that step, on my mother's step. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. And how did you deal with those attempts? The way you've got to deal with them. Take her on the chin. Be more observant and just crack on with your life. Yeah. And the anniversary of all this stuff with Craig is coming up. Yeah, the 6th of April. So how does that make you feel? I haven't dealt with it, mate. You haven't dealt with it? I haven't dealt with it. I haven't had time to deal with it. So when that day comes, it hits me hard. Every year, it doesn't matter where I am. So it's touching... It's 18 years, actually. I think it's coming up to 18 years. This year, I'm... The 6th of April, it'll be 18 years. 12 of them I was in custody. The last six have been out of custody, so... Every year's the same, same... Same depth of feelings, same emotional turmoil. I'm definitely dealing with... Some sort of psychological damage off that incident, Ronnie. Of course. Mm. Yeah. Cos, as I say in that documentary, it was a war image. It wasn't, it wasn't like a straightforward... Bang, 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 he shot. It was a crazy war image. The good thing is that they didn't make you out to be someone who hadn't turned his life around. At the end, you know, you're telling them, aren't you? This is the harm that these dealers are causing to Liverpool City. Well, what I'm screaming now, if you go and watch that documentary, that was done in 2018. I haven't changed my narrative. I've got more passionate about the same narrative, the same like subjectively, like I've just got more passionate, more intense about it. Around that time, is that when you started, Calmac? Yeah, Choose a Life, Not a Knife. Yeah. Happened when I was on licence. Yeah. I was on licence, I was in St. Helens, I was under, like I said the other night, Map 3, t- 3 Tier 4, which is the highest level. And I was just, I had no boiler because the landlord had took her out. Probation weren't helping me. I weren't, I couldn't get no money because I'd lost my job. So I was waiting for the transition onto the universal, like, um, job seekers allowance. That was taking its time. And I was just at my wit's end. I had no one around me because the probation and the restrictions on the map 3 to 4 was so stringent. 50 people on my no contact list. They wouldn't let me go to my mother's. All this, all that sort of stuff left me in a very, very bad place. So I got everywhere ready, ready to do myself. And as I've said all the times, before it was when I was feeling depressed, I'm going through all these self-help things and the hashtag choose a life not a knife popped up. Since then I've carried it. Has she ever reached out to that woman? Which woman? Oh Croydon, was it? I reached out for air. I tried to find her, locate as soon as I got the hashtag I've located her, bam, this doesn't look like it's been getting used. Can I use it? Take it. And then I've been trying to locate her since because everyone seems to be thinking that the police down there was screaming and shouting about this before me. They wasn't really. They've been a little mentioned, but they weren't forcing it. I've sort of got the ball rolling and they've pushed it as well. So I looked into that. You know, when a couple of years ago, people were trying to write the message off saying, saying it was fake, this fake, that I tried to counteract their allegations. So when I'm looking into it, there's a certain date that comes after my date, and that's when they started pushing it properly. So it is what it is. It's a message anyway. It's not my message. It's a community message. Anyone can embrace the message and share it. It's not like I've got I've patented it, and if you say anything like this, you're going to get copywritten. Anyone can use that message. 
that's why the hate, the people that are hating on me and now trying to destroy the message are screaming, it's not your message, it started here, it started there. So I've, I've put it into Kalnakuk, Kalnak UK, which simply means the same thing, but it's my message now. Kalnakuk is my message, Kalnak UK. Anything that gets successful, you just got people trying to spoil it. Uh, it's yeah. ridiculous. But, but let's focus on the opportunities. It seems like your opportunities are expanding, even with all these dickheads trying to take you down. Of course. Um, mm. The Deadly just went on Netflix a few months ago. You've also been in this movie that we just watched the trailer for, didn't we? And people can just see how powerful your presence is on camera. And is that opening the door into other opportunities? Yeah, well, without me knowing, I. Um that documentary on the Delhi was, was all done in 2018. It was done four months after the attempts on my life or something like that, so I'm looking a little bit rough, but, you know, my narrative was the same. There was legal opposition to it, I believe. That's what I got led to believe, and they couldn't, they couldn't air it on Channel 5. So when it popped up a couple of months ago, someone sent me a link to it saying, wow, you're on Netflix. <laughs> it's gone from Channel 5 to a... Worldwide audience. Totally. Wow. Instead of it going to a Channel 5 around the country, it's gone into the worldwide audience on Netflix and it's it's, very, it's a very popular documentary. So on the back of that, it's sent a lot of traffic. It's got a lot of decent people from America looking at it and interested in the story now. So it, it's a good thing. At the at the point at the front of all this is Kalnak UK. Just spreading internationally, go on. And um, what about your acting? Well, I, I can act anyway. Yeah, I think you know <laughs> the environment of being in and the situations of being in. You're basically acting through them anyway. Even in prison, you you put a persona on that you're this big, but 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 you've got a you've got there's a certain level of acting going on right through your life. All of us. So you're going through prison. You're turning your life around in prison, but there's always threats and bullshit and drama they're trying to suck you into. How did you maintain a mental discipline to prevent yourself from falling into that and extending your sentence or getting, you know? Well, when, when I'm on remands, I'm thinking, fuck it. You know, I've been instructed by my legal team over and over again, you're getting 30 to a 35 recommendation here. So in my head, I put it in my head, I'm getting lifed off and I'm acting like this is my new life. I've just brought me street activity into the prison activity, if you like, volatile, dominating proceedings, sort of stuff. And then as soon as I got a release date, I had to change my ways, and that's what I'd done. Headed for the education system instead of the medication system. Kept myself solitary. Still engaged with the boys. Still done what I've done with the boys. But I had the mindset is I've got a release date here and I want to get out at the earliest possible date. And that's what kept me... Talking about getting out, I noticed on your channel recently <coughs> you're talking... Well, you've got a petition up for the IPP. That you're yeah. really promoting at the moment. I did sign in last well, night, by the way. I've been trying for, for ages to contact me, brother. I've been using different prison numbers or whatever. No one seems to be helping them. And no one can help them. The only way I can help them and other people can help their relatives, their sons, their dads, their uncles, is by getting a petition going, focusing on the release of over-tariff IPP prisoners. Mm. Danny's one of them. So just as brother, I mean, I need my brother out of jail. He got a four-year IPP in 2008, and here he is now, 2022. He's never had it nice in the system, Danny. He's always been terrorised off the officials within the system, whether it was care homes, whether any, any sort of custodial setting, Danny's always had it extra hard, and there's loads of people that can back that up. Mm. So the IPP... That's what it's about, getting this petition signed. It's it's rolling. My people are signing it. They're starting to share it. We need 10,000 for it to get a mention. We need 100,000 for it to get talked about. So the more people that jump on board and sign that things, the, the law's being abolished. And when I was in custody, when I first started going to custody, they had a different law in. It was two strikes and you're out for violent criminals. When they brought the IPP in, they abolished the two strike law and there's lads now still in custody, being in custody with five recommendations, but they've been in custody for 22 years because that law has been abolished. Now, when they've abolished this law, I can see what, what they're doing with it. 
50% of these kids will not see the light of day because they won't get a mention. There's no people out here fighting for them. There's no, you know, the mums have died whilst they've been in custody, the family have disappeared. So it's a very important thing that I'm doing here with this um, petition to get over terrified PP prisoners out. It's vital because there's lots and lots of young men and women who are suffering in the unknown, no hope. They've done everything they can to abide by rules and regulations, meet all sentence plan targets, and they start messing up because they're over-tariffed by three or four years and they just start giving up and start experiencing in drugs and participating in violence because they've got no hope at all. So it is what, it's, it's a powerful thing. And the position link will be put below this video, so please sign it. Because one of our first ever podcast guests, a guy called Pepsi Watson, he got recalled. And well, he was in contact with me for a, reg a regular mm. um, Pepsi Watson, yeah. He's campaigning for IPP prisoners. And he's been in, he's been, he got breached a license and no one's heard a day of life of him since, have we? So if you go back three years ago, he was out, he had his little thing, he, I think it was three years ago, he had his little thing going on, his, trying to get his podcasting thing going and then... Yeah, Suck he, away. He got, yeah. he got sponsored by a guy who watched his podcast who helped him move and get a podcast studio going and everything. And then he just got recalled over some bullshit. It's really sad. Well, that's all it takes these days is a, is a minute bit of intelligence that, that might have came from one of your enemies, that might have came from something that's not substantial, and they just beat you. And the person processing that has got so much power over you. And those people can be quite nasty as well. Once you've got a prison number and once you've got a probation officer, you're basically, you're not in control of your life. They've got control of your life and if you don't bow down to what they want you to do, they can just put you in custody. Before they place you in custody, they give you warnings, which is basically threats. And them threats and them warnings damage you psychologically by themselves because you're always on tenter hooks. So you mentioned earlier, like, you gave us a broad picture of how you were still playing along with the fellas, but you were turning your life around. Was there a moment that, like, just triggered you to turn it around? Yeah, there was the sycamore tree. Sorry? Sycamore tree. Sycamore tree? Yeah, it's an offending behaviour programme, but it's not run by the justice system. It's run by a Christian charity. Mm. So the sycamore tree relates to a tree in the Bible called a sycamore tree. And what it does, during that, they have victim impact sessions, so they'll have victims coming in, sitting down, explaining what the what this crime has done to them and their family. And you sort of start relating. And the pivotal point for me was, they used to have a bucket in the middle of it. When you're coming to the end of the course, you used to have a bucket in the middle of the room and they'd give you a pebble, and you'd throw the pebble into the bucket of water. It'd land in the middle and it'd ripple. And basically, every time someone commits a crime in the community, wherever that crime's committed, there's a ripple effect. Everyone's affected. You know, it sends a, it sends a, a stream of fear, a stream of anxiety, and that's what the ripple effect done to me. It made me grasp my actions and the actions I committed and the damage it had done to the city of Liverpool and my community. Great analogy. Before you got arrested, what was your drug use like? Massive. I was just smoking. Well, if you think about it, six to eight. I'm smoking weed anyway because we're. That's the culture. We were smoking weed anyway, growing up smoking weeds. Whenever all gangs of lads are smoking weed back then, like they are now. When the sixth of April come after that, after that incident when Craig was shot dead and Ian was hurt and Mark was hurt, it just went through the roof. I was using that to try and help me sleep, but I weren't sleeping. I was using it to calm my nerves, but I was nervous. Do you understand? So it was just counteracting itself, basically, and I went through the roof. Then when it comes to the 18th of May, I'm still still smoking opiates, amounts of weed, and then 20th, of going to custody, and the psychological withdrawal was massive, huge. How was it the cops apprehended you? Um, I'd run out of weed. No. I'd run out, so I've, I've got an apartment by Green's Gym on the Dock Road where little Ian Kelly was shot there, just in front of his mum's house. I've got a, I've got an apartment on the second floor there and that's where I'm based. 
you know, since Craig's been shot, I'm based in there. And I'd had, a, I'd had a certain amount of cannabis. The shootings happened on the 18th of May. I've gone back to this gaff and within, because of the shooting that's just gone on, the weed's just being smoked, you know, just like chain smoking it. So I've had to go out to get weed. So I've had to get on my bike, shoot up towards Brecht Road and go and get myself a weed. So I'm packing, I've got my thing, I'm on my mountain bike, I'm going down Brecht Road and I see the arse bronze field could come towards me. So I'm going down that way, it's coming. They lock onto me straight away, so I've got a little chase. What we used to do in them days is go left, go right, drop your shit, carry on going, go left, go right, you know, so you take them away from it. So that's exactly what I'd done. And then just got put on the floor and arrested. Did your shit not get found? No. no. Although they locked the area down for a couple of hours, searching like, I think it was a square mile, but they never recovered nothing. So until you got arrested, how many years of drug use had you done? Since the age of 14. And how old were you when you got arrested? 24. So you go in the system then, right? Yeah. You've got no weed or anything else you can get your hands on in, in the beginning, I assume. Yeah. How's your head? Is it battered by everything? It's battered, yeah, because when all the drugs start leaving your system, your mind becomes clearer and your emotions start becoming rawer. And the Craig was just the Craig incident. I hadn't really, I'd, I'd cried and soaked, but I turned that cry and soaking into aggression and violence to deal, to, to look for revenge and retaliation, it switched the mindset. And when you're in custody, you start finding yourself a little bit more. I was placed in the segregation for the first six weeks, seeing the cat aid me, you know, to go through the process to see if you're a high risk prisoner or whatever. During them six weeks, I was put onto a suicide watch. They opened the act on me. When I come off that and just went onto normal location, I had what I wanted and when I needed it. So it was okay. So going back to the Craig situation, uh, do you want to talk through the car swap that we were talking about earlier, the seat swapping? Because I found that quite interesting on the documentary. Right, so... Basically, because I was banned, I was banned from driving at the age of 40, 15. I was banned for 10 years. So because I was banned, I had my little brother got, got his license and got him legit on my vehicles. So he was always driving my cars and I was always in the passenger seat. On this occasion, um, we bought this new vehicle. We shot to speak to get the thing for the lead for the PlayStation. My mum's rang me for the washing. We've come back as we pulled into our close. I've asked Craig to jump out and get the washing out. My mum's with me because he was always in my mum's every day. We've gone in, got the bags of washing, put them in the boot, and I've told Craig to jump into the passenger seat, and I've jumped in the back seat to have a go with the computer. And as we've gone out, the gunman's attacked the passenger seat. Mm. So he's in your place. Yeah. So he's being told to target the passenger seat. Yeah. Which is what it is. What is a suicide watch prison like in the UK? A cell? When I first went into custody, it's completely different to what it is now. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a cell, it's a block. It's a block cell. You've got a bed hanging off the floor. You've got different types of blankets and you've got gowns. You can't wear your own clothes. You can't do this. They've got plastics over the window so you can't hang yourself. You're only allowed certain types of cutlery and they come and check at you every half an hour to switch the lights on. So it makes you even more suicidal because <laughs> when you're trying see. to get asleep, they're just, are you okay? It's horrible. These days, in private prisons, because when, when the prison system turned to the private sector an awful lot in this country, they used to get fined for every, so if they get a phone over the fence, they'll get a fine. If they find drugs, they'll get a fine. If an individual hung himself, they used to get half a million pound fine. So what they've done is they've made cells where the bars, the doors are bars with perplex glass. And what they'll do is put two officers outside that cell 24-7. Wow. To watch that inmate. Wow. I imagine then, you know, you've had this chase, been arrested, your adrenaline is just going crazy when you've been processed. How long does it take for that to calm down? It doesn't. It doesn't calm down, so you get your chase, you get arrested, you're put into custody, and they don't want you to calm down. They want you agitated, so when you get into interview, 
you're not you're not in control of what's going on really so it's in their interest to keep you agitated and with us being the g name and the police really hating on us we never got a nice time in any police station so it is what it is did they try and put your meds right away or anything no no mm. none of that they didn't give you help when you're asking back in them days did you so ask? i knew yeah as soon as I've gone into custody, I'm, I'm requesting psychological help to deal with this situation. They were just refusing it, refusing, refusing it. it, refusing it. Wow. Never gave me no help whilst I was in custody. For the whole 12 years I stayed in custody, never gave me no help over it. So as you work your way into the system then, there's drugs are prevalent. Yeah. How did you, did you do drugs in prison to self-medicate or did you stay away just from cannabis. Cannabis. You know, back in back in them days, you get Nick Smoke on a spliff, you get 28 days closed visits and you get 28 days added to your sentence and so on and so forth. There was a lot of heroin in the place because there was a lot of addicts in the place, but I weren't into anything like that. It was just the cannabis for me. How sad are the people taking the heroin? Are they from really bad you know, backgrounds, sad stories? Believe it or not, mate, um, the majority, well, not the majority, there's a large percentage of what you'd call the boys smoking heroin behind bars and the family don't know it and the mates don't know it. There's only a select clientele of people that understand what's going on and they're smoking Bobby and they have been smoking heroin for years. You've got lads who are doing long-term sentences who have gained addictions in custody when they never had addictions to anything outside, they come into the custody, can't handle a jail, they need something for the head to get to bed. And that's the shout, anything for the head, anything for the head. Some, some decent kids outside end up addicted and fucked inside because they can't handle a jail. The Spice Wife. Back then, when I first went to custody, you didn't even hear a Spice. Coming to the end of my sentence, Spice was like smack back then. Mm. It created so basically years ago when I was a YP or whatever everyone was on weed but the punishment was too harsh your visitors get stopped you get days added to your sentence all of a sudden this thing turned up called heroin which you could smoke in a spliff but it'll be out your system in 24 hours so if you got a piss test it wouldn't come up you wouldn't be punished but you'd get a similar effect Without inmates understanding what they were doing, they started participating and taking this substance, not realising that they'd be addicted to it within a few months. And what it, what it basically done, it created something like 20,000 addicts overnight heroin did in the prison system. So heroin comes out of your system in 24 hours. What about weed? Weed 28 days. 28 days? Yeah. yeah. And it's the same with Spice. And, and Spice done exactly the same thing as the heroin did, only this time it's affecting a different generation. So back then it was heroin that created so many addicts. In the last 10 years in the prison system, it's created about 40,000 mental health patients. Wow. Spice doesn't give you an, addi an addiction in that sense. It gives you psychological problems. Mm. What was that spice attack? When they have it, they're like crumbing at the walls out somewhere. Well, I've, I've seen it. I've yeah. seen. I've seen. I've seen. I've saved the lad in HMP Hindley. Oh shit! Was he flopping? He was running down, banging to walls. So he'd be spinning down like that and going, but wouldn't go to the floor. He'd just bounce off, and then eventually just be on the deck. Oh man! But he'd be resuscitated. He'd go to the hospital wing. You'd come back four weeks later, and you'd see him again. At it again. And he must have died twice. I'm there over the same kid giving him CPR and the screws are stood there shitting themselves, haven't got a clue what to do. I'm left fucked off it. I've only got 18 months left of my sentence. They don't help you. They deny it even happened. Because then they're going to get fined or whatever, they'll lose money. Yeah, they deny it even happened. The spice epidemic within the prison system now, juveniles and adults, is, is naughty and they can't control it. Because of that, because of that spice pandemic, the violence has gone through the roof. You've got lads who've been in for 15 years, on the gym, doing qualifications, the cell's full. They've got a parole coming up. They used to have a joint watching Champions League on the Wednesday nights. So instead of having a piss test just before the parole, they'd have a little spliff of spice. Six months after that spliff of spice, everything in the cell's gone. All the fucking, everything's gone. Finished completely fucked. Wow. Down the block looking more charges. And we interviewed the guard, didn't we? He, he was bringing it in. 
he was getting five hundred pounds a package, and his starting salary was eighteen thousand pounds. So well, of well, do it. well, they're the worst of the fucking worst officers who who change course and start bringing drugs in, substances in, like spice. They know the damage it's doing to individuals within the system. They can see the psychological damage. They can see the rise in violence. They're just dirty rats. They're them them type of screws do not belong in the prison system and there's loads of them because the money now for a prison officer is not what it used to be. A few years ago, they brought a new thing in where they changed the contracts and the, the people that, the officers that have been in the system for 35 years was used to getting 42 grand, 45 grand or whatever. They just chopped it up mm. and put it down to 23 grand a year and give them the option, take a redundancy pay or, or sign this new contract. The majority of the experienced officers who knew how systems work, who knew how the landings work, just took the redundancy pay because they couldn't be asked. These these young lads, 23, coming into the system as prison officers, so easy to manipulate. The majority of them coming off the local estates and the money's too rewarding from criminals to bow down to it. And that's what happens. How can it ever be stopped? If you're getting 500 a package, you can be bringing three packages a day. It doesn't matter who do you rest. How can you ever stop that? Yeah, because the temptation's right. Yeah, but the, but at the same time, the sentences aren't fairly distributed. So, for example, if you had a if you had a known criminal bringing a thousand pounds worth of spice and and getting it into custody and selling it in custody, you'd get an eight. If you've got a prison officer, you'll get a three. So the you know there's not really a, a disincentive. Yeah, there's not there's not something there to make them think twice about it. Do you think the system's got a vested interest? Because if you go in with a low-level drug use and come out a heroin addict or a spice head, you're going to go back to crime and come right back to the system, aren't you? And it's like you've you've client for life. Then, then at the end of the day, the, the prison system now is it, it's not able to rehabilitate anyone. It's not able to pe- take people off drugs. There's that much drugs within the custody. They're happy living in custody. People with addictions are happy being in custody because they can get nicked outside and then when they come into custody, they can continue the habit just like they're outside. The only difference is they're locked up a little bit through the day and through the night. So do people try and come to you and get you to do heroin and spice? All the time. It is what it is. You don't even have... People People like me in the system don't have to participate in that shit anyway because whatever's coming on the wing, you're getting a percentage either way. They, they call it like, oh, there's a little favour, da, 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 da. but really, you know, you're getting that sort of shit anyway. And what you do with it, you do with it. So you read a lot. When did that start? Which? Um, your reading in prison. What was your Straight first away. Book? Straight away. Straight away. First book. Yeah. First book was a cray book. Ah. I think I think the majority of people my age when they first go into custody, the first books they're reading as a YP uh, about gangsters. Hmm. And the Bible. You didn't see Sean's book in there? <laughs> no, because Sean was later on, really. <laughs> yeah. So the craze in the Bible, that's a contrast, isn't it? Yeah. But the Bible, you get issued. When, when I first went into custody as a YP, the Bible got issued with your bedpack. Have you read much of it? I try to, but it just gets, it, you know, it starts contradicting itself. Mm. Did you read much before you got arrested? Sort of, yeah. I've always, I've always tried to learn myself to read because I got kicked out of school at an early age, and I didn't want, you know, I've always had to educate myself in some form or way. And reading was one of the main benefactors in my education. So, what they done in the prison system, which was the worst thing they could have fucking done, was brought tellies in. Mm. Babysitter. So before before televisions used to have libraries that were packed out with books in the prison system for youth, for 14, 15, 16 year old lads used to get the library once, twice a week, bam, bam, bam. The lads who was going, everyone used to go to the library off the wing because it was time out the cell and you'd get something to occupy your mind whilst in your cell. Everyone was learning to read, everyone was getting intelligent, everyone was having a brain, they could form conversations, they could speak on a level, blah, blah, blah. They bring tellies in. The books go out the window and all you've got is a prison system full of dunces. You cannot read. I'm not lying. You know, the illiterate levels in prison are through the roof because of televisions. It's making it, everyone lazy. 
it, it's what it's dumbing the brain. It's dumbing the brain. It's conditioning them. I was I was one of the first whilst I'm in Hinley as a YP got shipped there from Old Course to Hinley. Me and Danny had a situation in Old Course. I got shipped there. He got shipped there. While I'm in Hinley, I was a, I managed to get myself a cleaner, and I was cleaner. And we were we were the first landing in the whole prison to get the televisions. And although the the aerial wasn't connected properly and it was all static and shit. We were still over the moon that this telly was there. But you could see what it done. It just dumbed people down straight away. And it gave the authorities a level of control because everything that was coming out the mouth was, you do that, you lose your telly. You do that, you lose your telly. You do that, you lose your telly. So before the telly's coming, if an officer was wrapping a kid up, a few kids are standing, wah, 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 solidarity, you know, stop this shit. As soon as the tellies were there, the officer could beat this kid up and everyone standing back because they don't want to lose the telly. And that's all the televisions came in for. It came in as a part of an IEP scheme. Incentive earned privileges, which is basic, standard and enhanced. If you end up in basic, you go behind your door 23 hours a day, you've got to wear prison shoes and you don't get exercise or no gym or no canteen and stuff like this. If you if you abide by the rules and regulations, you'll be on standard. On standard, you get a few more perks. Then if you're on enhanced, you're allowed a computer, you're allowed this, an extra gym session, an extra hour on your visit. And that's what they brought into the system to control the violence and control the individuals within prison. Is there a sense that if they're watching the TV, they're not causing any shit at that moment? Well, they're not. Mm. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. You know, it got to the point where kids wouldn't even come out the cells or go to work because they wanted to watch the telly. They just so, watching TV Yeah, so what they do, they'd switch the telly off from outside the cell at a certain time, so the kids would have to go to work and then come back and be switched back on for them, you know what I mean? So, What's the most watched TV shows in prison? I don't know, mate. I, um, I didn't really watch the telly, even though EastEnders. I had the telly. EastEnders. It's, it's, it's just the yeah. same as out here. It'll be the same. Brookside. You know, for me, it was match of the day on a Saturday night and then I'd watch match of the day two on a Sunday and then that was it, basically. Or I'd watch Channel 4 News or Holmes Under the Hammer. That was my sort of content or little documentaries that kicked in. Was it like watching the news in there? You know, you've gone from not having the TV to then obviously having the TV and seeing what the hell's going well, on. It's, it's, the, world. it's like so. when you're in a segregation unit in this country, they have got to keep you informed of what's going on in the outside world. So what they'll have is stage papers. So every segregation unit in the country will get something like 12 papers, like the Mirror and da, 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 all them papers, and they'll be pushed under the door and they'll be shared with, to keep you in, in contact with what's going on outside. And basically that's what they do on the wings. But then the tellies came in, and that was that was another avenue of you keeping in touch with the what was going on in the outside world. Did you have that in Arizona? So in Arizona, you got a little uh, Walkman radio thing, and you put your headset on and listen to radio stations and get the news off the radio news, stations. Yeah. That's how they did it. Some people had newspapers, but it's like over time, you, in the beginning, you like attached to that, but over time, you detach from it. Like, did you give a shit what was going on in the outside world that's all the way through your incarceration or did you detach from it? No, I, I detached from my family and the bullshit and, and the shit that was going on because you've got to, because at that time when I've, when I've gone into custody, you know, in 2004 when I went into custody, the war pursued outside, it didn't cease because I'd gone to jail. Mm -hmm. So every time I'm getting on the phone, my ma's house is being shot up mm. or... Ian's babies being hit with a bullet, or the neighbours' kids being hit with a shotgun, the house is being burned. So every time I was getting on the phone, it was just whoa, stress fuming in myself. Just da, 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 da. that many, was that was on a regular. How many times has your mum's house been shot up? About seven. Wow. Hmm? Does she still live there? She still lives there now. We got to the point where we purchased bulletproof windows. Wow. You know, and and there's still shotgun wounds on the windows. She's still got them bulletproof windows on the front of her house, yeah. Brave woman living there still. Yeah. It's not brave, it's just it's just a staunch scouse Irish background mother who won't move for fucking nothing. Doesn't matter what's in the way, she's not moving, you're, you're not moving me out of my home. That mentality, that's what all scouse mums are like, basically. Oh, sound of her. <laughs> Strong. A bit like wild woman. Yeah. <laughs> it was due to come today, but so she couldn't. you were arrested then, and you're in pre-sentence fighting your case, right? I'm on remand, yeah. Remand. 
How long is it before you actually got sentenced? So I go in in 2004, and I'm not sentenced till the middle of 2007. So I'm only man for two and a half years. And in the beginning, they told you you were facing 30-something? Yeah, the, all my legal representative was telling me continuously, expect a 30 to 35 recommendation because it's borderline contract killing. So did you have any suicidal thoughts at that point? Yeah, yeah. I was suicidal the minute I went in, I told you. Yeah. yeah. And how did you prevent yourself from acting out on that? you just got to fight the cause. So you'd think about it and then pull yourself away from it? You haven't got a chance to concentrate on it, if you understand what I mean, because me being the individual who I was at that time, I've got a name to uphold, I've got a, a an aura to continue with. I can't be this weak cunt crying in a celebrity night and then coming out the next morning thinking I'm fucking running the wing. So the minute I come out the block, I'm into this persona and you've got to live and develop a personality so you survive within the prison system. You get the weakest kids who cannot fight, who go into custody, but on the landing, the bigger they're up is if they can fight because you've got to, because the first sign of weakness, yeah. you're, you're targeted. And whilst you're focused on creating this personality or this whatever, upholding this reputation, you haven't got time to think about the shit, what's going on. You haven't got time. You've got to focus on the present and the danger that's present right now. Did you have to go up to court every month? Yeah, I was going to... So, basically, the... They initially arrested me for murder. So when they've, when they've got me on the floor, they've arrested me for the murder of David Regan. They understood that they couldn't get me with the murder. I was about to be bailed from the police station. So they then re-arrested me on threats to kill David Regan. I was then placed in custody on the threats to kill. Eight weeks later, they come back and arrested me with conspiracy to murder. And what evidence did they have at that point? Just statements of William Moore's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Not solid? Nothing. They never had nothing right up. Basically, I was convicted on second-hand hearsay, so... So my first year, I'm going in court, and every now and then you get your hopes up, and then it goes down, up, down. But my legal situation deteriorated for the first year and got more stressful. Did, did your legal situation deteriorate, or did it improve? No, the police didn't let up. Like, they put me in custody on this charge, but they thought, and they half knew, I'm walking on this. So what they do, they decide to strengthen it. So every other month, I'd be getting took out to a local police station and charged with other offences. Mm. So in custody, I ended up with conspiracy to possess firearms, conspiracy to blackmail, conspiracy to supply class A drugs, two counts on each. What was invented by some kid called Elliot MacDonald, who I didn't know. The police, this, this kid, this Elliot... Whilst I'm on my man for the conspiracy to murder, it's not going well for the police. They can see the case crumbling before their eyes. I'm the only kid in there. There's no cold D's. So I go to me, it used to be six months period, you get your first trial, six months, first trial. But what the police done a month before is kicked a few doors in and arrest a few more individuals. And then that's, that delayed my case for another six months. Mm. Do you understand? But during that proceeding, You've got a group of other lads from Anfield area who were selling drugs in Northwoods and that much. I didn't know these kids. One of the kids was under observation. He was getting watched. Every time he pulled him, he'd give a fake name in and a fake date of birth. Every time he went into custody, he'd give a fake name in, fake date of birth. When they've closed that operation down and he's gone into custody, he was a white pea, but he's gone into an adult prison because he was given a fake name and a fake date of birth of his brother. The police have got on him in some mad way. The police, the MIT involved in my murder, my murder trial had went to his prison, took him out on a Friday, had him for five days in their custody, and then produced him a court in his real name and his real date of birth. But during them five days, he'd made statement after statement after statement saying I'd put a shotgun in his mouth and was making him go down there and sell drugs. That went to court. So when I'm ending up in Manchester Crown Court on trial for that allegation, it was obvious this Elliot MacDonald was lying, but it took the judge right up to the last minute till we got him on the stand and proved he was just a lying scumbag to drop the case. So they were just, the police were continuously putting shit on me to make me fucking head go, basically. Was it, was it like having a trial? The trial was naughty. On that trial, you know, Danny ended up involved in that trial because 
There was a lad called Daniel MacDonald who was shot dead at the turn of the millennium. He was shot dead in a pub. He was the first shooting, Danny Ward, Danny Mach. When they went to his house, there's been a Mondeo up the path. The Mondeo had bullet wounds or bullet marks right up the side of it. The police have searched it, and within that car, they found three firearms. And one of the firearms was a 308 Remington rifle, you know, a sniper rifle. Uh, when they took that sniper rifle away, they found partial DNA of one of the G brothers. They couldn't say what G it was, so they had me and Danny in custody for it. Danny put his hands up for it and got three and a half years for it because he never had a license. Well, that's that's how that's how it, that's just that's how they was with us. They were just fucking going all out to get us some sort of prison. I got not guilty on everything. It come to me first trial, which was. The beginning of 2007 for conspiracy to murder. I've got five, I've got four co-accused in the dock with me at this point: Mark Richardson, Scott Walker, Tony Bonehead, and Anthony Christian. Eventually, they all get acquitted. So I have first trial, which was 28 week trial. I'm going every day for this trial. Then it gets. I call. Um, one snitch gets off. Anthony Christian gets bailed. The next trial, it's just me and Mark Richardson. That's an 18-week trial. They sever them from me. And then I go back into the custody, Mark and that get acquitted. And then you've just got me. And I go for a two-day trial, and then I'm convicted on double-hand hearsay. What was your lawyer like? QC Lawson Rogers. He was one of the best out there. I didn't trust, I didn't trust the chambers within the city of Liverpool, so I, I looked further a distance and went to London. And got a I got a powerful barrister called Lawson Rogers, and he and he does he done what he I was a guilty man, I was looking at a thirty five wreck. He managed to get me a straight eighteen, so he done a very very sterling job, Mister Lawson Rogers. Yeah. Did he come in and tell you I think I can get you an eighteen? What do you mean? Like if you're facing so much, then. Did no, he he, you no, no, he never. He, he told me straight from the get go. Mm. You're looking at thirty wreck here, Darren. There's no ifs or buts. If you get convicted on this crime, you're getting a thirty wreck. Now, if he would have told me at the beginning, you're under the old law, you're going to get an eighteen with a guilty plea, we'll get you an eight. I would have thrown my hand in. But because he said you're getting a thirty wreck, it was got nothing to lose attitude. Let's mm. just ride it out and see if any luck comes. So you could have got an eight. Basically, yeah. If the advice was correct at the beginning, yeah. Here's a message from our sponsor. So does anyone fancy a free case of beer, craft beer that is, from Beer 52? Last thing you need, Jen, you are always late for work after you're drinking beer. (laughs) (laughs) That's eight delicious craft beers from some of the best breweries on the planet. So simply head over to beer52.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. If you didn't know. All you got to do is then pay the free £5.95 postage. Nothing. Peanuts. Peanuts. In fact, they send some snacks with them. You may get some peanuts. So every month, Beer52 send a new case with a different theme. From various parts of the world too. What parts of the world do you prefer your beers from, Jen? Ah, I guess. Oh God, where? <laughs> where's a good part of the world? I imagine you're a German. A German. I was thinking, knew you were going to say German. Is that German? Of, is yeah. that because of the strength? Yeah, and the taste. <laughs> Members have tasted beers from forty different countries, spanning five continents. Jen has tried them all, <laughs> and she's had brands from Mars as well. <laughs> You also get a magazine which delves into the theme, beer, and producers. Do you contribute to that magazine, Jen? Um, no, no, I haven't read it yet. No, I'll, I'll happy to. <laughs> you also get two free snacks. Yum. You can choose a case of light beer only or a mixture of dark and light. Do you prefer light or dark? Well, I like my beer like I like my men. <laughs> Weak. Weak? <laughs> there is no minimum commitment. You can pause or cancel any time. So don't forget, that's beer52.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. And all you've got to do is pay the piddly £5.95 postage. And claim your free case of beer now. Yes, get on it. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast. 
production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. How big a relief was it not to get the 30? What, where, were, where were you that day when you found that out? In the dock. <coughs> so the trial, it'd been, it'd been like over a year and 14 months for the three trials to be eventually dealt with. Eventually I'm in the dock by myself. I'm getting found guilty. I stand up to take her on the chin, thinking I'm going to get a 30 rack here. For some mad reason, the judge starts a lot going through his law book saying that my crime was committed pre-2005 and because my crime was committed pre-2005 I come under the old law so after 2005 if you committed the same conspiracy to murder charge you will be getting a mandatory life sentence which will be a recommendation of 2030 whatever before that before the 2005 law the adoptions whether to give you a discretionary life depending on whether your history was violent or a long determinist sentence. The only other violent offence I'd had before this one was threats to kill on a prison officer in HMP Walton and SOA where they didn't like us, as I keep on saying, they didn't like me and Danny, so any opportunity they could have to twist us up and drag us down the block, they'd done that. This time they were overhanded. There was like nine of them dragging me down, carrying me, giving me body shots. As all this is happening, I'm screaming at the SO that's leading the way saying, I know where you fucking live, you little rat, you better get your family out, your house is getting burnt to the ground. In earshot was a number one governor. So I'm down the segregation unit now in a strip cell. I'm placed into a normal, normal cell for the night. The next morning, I'm whipped off, transferred to St. Um, Strangeways Prison. Whilst I'm at Strangeways Prison, police come up and charge me with threats to kill on SOE. So I go to trial on that, throw my hands in on it, get 15 months for it. And that's that was the only previous violent offence that I'd ever been charged with. So because of that, the judge turned around and said in the courtroom, I don't deem you a threat to the general public of the city of Liverpool. I deem you a threat to the criminal fraternity in the city of Liverpool. And for that reason, and that reason only, I'm giving you a long determinist sentence. As soon as I heard that come out of his mouth, mm. I was buzzing. I had weed there, everything sweet, went downstairs, lit a spliff. Who was the first people that you told? No one. I was in a cell by myself. I was just elated. I had a release date. That's all it was. I just had a release date. I made a track called Conspiracy to Murder and it sort of tells you everything you need to know in that track, basically. What? I had a release date. I was fucking buzzing, blazing my spliff, got on the bus, <laughs> went back to Strangeways like I was in a five-star hotel. All because beforehand, beforehand, this is the rest of my life. I'm yeah. getting 30 to 35. All of a sudden, I can be out in 12 years' time. You know, I'm elated about it, I'm buzzing about it. I'm sitting there buzzing in my cell, just cracking on, getting my gym ready. Soon as soon as I got that sentence, I start eating properly, I start feeding really? properly, I start yeah. gymming it properly because the stress has just gone. There's no stress there now. I've got a release date. But under my door comes a letter, the prosecution aren't happy. This is like a week later. A letter comes under my door saying the prosecution aren't happy with your sentence. They've, they've referred it to the Attorney General. They're trying, they're trying to get the 18 years turned into 18 years life recommendation sentence. So for another 12 weeks or something, I'm sweating. The anxiety's back, I'm doing this. But eventually the letter comes over. The Attorney General says the sentence is adequate enough for the crime. The, the stress... Of not, not knowing, knowing you're yeah. going to get your life back is, the, is worse than anything, isn't it? That, yeah. that was the police. So, for, for example, when I was found guilty, there was like four, there was like 12 coppers suited up all in the, all in the, the side, you know, the gallery. And when I was convicted, way jumping around the room, laughing at me, pointing at me, going out. Me people that was in the hallway outside could hear them getting onto their bosses going, we've got a conviction, yeah, he's going down for life. They're going down for 30 rest. They've come back in. The judge said, I'm going to sentence him today. I don't want reports. And when he's, when he's given me the 18, he goes, mm. oh. you know, just absolutely traumatised that I've got a release date. And that's what happened. Did you see what the papers had said? The papers wrote me off. Yeah. The papers absolutely wrote me off. The, the Liverpool Echo, and it continues to do so. Mm. Even when we're in custody, every year without fail, our names would be getting mentioned, so our profile wouldn't be getting left alone. So... When I'm getting out of custody, my profile's massive. No, other people that go into custody for double figures or something like that, the brothers aren't playing up like my brothers was. 
So when I'm in custody, you've got you've got my other brothers shining the torches and committing violent crimes, which is not letting the name become non-existent. So we've always been in the public domain. We've always had this notoriety attached to us, this violent reputation, and it doesn't leave you alone. I'm still dealing with it now. I was going to say, what does that feel like? I can't, I can't distinguish not feeling like that because I've oh. been treated like that for since a minor, basically, yeah. When you got the 18 years then, how did you get word to your mum and your brothers? And they knew anyway. Oh, they knew? Well, they knew straight they, away. From the court here? Yeah, they, they knew straight away, yeah. Did family members come to court for you? Did you not want them now? Some came, but it was, my mum could come as much as she could. You know, the first trial, 28 weeks. 28 weeks? That's what it was, the first you trial. You court every day for 28 weeks? Every week, except for the weekend. Holy wow. shit! That's like... Six month trial. Half a year? Yeah, six month trial. Every day. So they'd already been and come every day on that. My mum, as 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 I stated in the past, my mum had been thrown out of a window by my dad, shattered her back. So just getting there and back from Manchester Crown Court was awkward for her. And to turn up every day and go through the stress and the aggression of the police and the snide remarks and the other family giving a shit and all this stuff, it was but just too much for her. Yeah, the, the, the police have always terrorised me, mum. The police have tried to arrest me mum and get a charge saying she was the matriarch of a crime family when she just wasn't. She's just she's just a single mother with five kids, you know what I mean? But yeah. my mum's irrelevant in my life right now for obvious reasons. So earlier on then they said they kicked you out of school. What did they kick you out of school for? Um so we've ended up in Breckfield North senior school i'm in the first year senior school there we've come there with a reputation anyway we're unruly kids there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma going on at home you know it's not a loving home it's a violent domestic abuse house so when i'm going into school you can see the signs of me being you know not a normal child i'm dealing with something here on this one occasion, I have done nothing wrong, but someone else has thrown something at the back of the teacher's head, like a ball of paper. And everybody's turned back round to the blackboard and it's been done again. And he's looking round and then he's done it again. He points the finger at me because I'm normally the, the kid that's not adapting to this environment. He starts blaming me, shouting me, da 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 da. So I've picked a fire extinguisher up and started chasing him with it and throwing it at him. That got me expelled from school for a full year. During that full year, I was on the streets. I was getting no home shooting. I was getting no other sort of education. I was mixing with the elders. And that's where my life started delving into crime and all that sort of stuff. I think in an earlier interview, you mentioned about the community centres, though, that gave you some reprieve from that. You would go to the community centres. Well, there was community centres splattered all over the place, whether it was the little church where I'm always, um, Beacon, Beacon Place, where I'm always speaking about, or Anfield. Priory Road. There was, there was community centres where you could go and chill and have a little bit of respite from the life at home. But it just, eventually, I weren't fitting in there. I weren't conforming to their rules and regulations, just like schools. Is it your personal experience with the community centres, Darren, that motivates you now to try and encourage community centres? I know how vital they are. Mm. I know how vital community centres are, community hubs that are run by the right people, obviously. The vital, especially these days, where kids are gathering in groups and gangs at the bottom of the street because there is no community centres, there is no safe haven for for the good people in the bunch to go to. So when you have got good people in the bunch, eventually the good are turning bad because there's no alternative route for them. It's very vital. So you might have heard me two or three years ago setting a GoFund page up to try and raise £55,000 to try and sustain three or four... Um, community centres around the Liverpool area to keep the doors open, to keep the, you know, to keep the eating on, so kids I mean, can still not access a lot of money these. To, well, obviously it's a lot of money, but it's, it's a lot not, of money. But money ten, ten, ten grand, to... ten grand to ten grand to each community would have kept them open for a few years. But during that few years, they would have been able to save any other extra dollar they could to keep continue the process. But I set the GoFundMe page up. The people that are attacked, the people that. I've been attacking me for years and years. 
just recruited more little rats to attack me, and he started. They started hacking the GoFund page. They reported it. They reported it. Just started all shit, and then started spreading rumours that I'd been taking the money and I'd been spending the money from the GoFund page when in reality I hadn't. They did that too. They do. So many people we spoke to, haven't they? Loads of people like John Wedge, other people like that. I donated to it, and they sent me my money back. Well, I've got. Mm. That's what I mean, and that's that's how. But once a rumour spread. It's very hard to reverse them rumours. When people are assassinating your character and trying to fuck your life up, they go in deep and the shit that's coming out the mouth, although there's no facts, although there's no absolute no truth to it, once it's out there, it runs itself, doesn't it? Mindless And that's what happened to me two, two, two years ago. So what is kind in Wavertree? Kind's a charity and I got on this kind just by looking at charities in Liverpool who I wanted to help with money from my clothing brand of Choose a Life, Not a Knife. A percentage of the money and the profit was going to community centres. The first one I spotted was kind. Mm-hmm. And what it is, it's a, it's a community centre that embraces all children from all Liverpool and Merseyside and surrounding areas. And it's just so, it's so pleasing to see a Scouseman doing what he's doing with this, with this community centre and how he's progressed. And I just wanted to help as much as I could. So the first, the first lump sum I got when, on the back of a podcast, I, I set my business up, everything was going fine, I was starting to receive money. The first lump I got, I went and gave them, it was something like £1,100. Went and gave them that. And I, I, my incentive was to, was to continue to give them money and to give other community centres money off the profit. But I just got cancelled out by poisonous individuals who didn't like how popular it was becoming and didn't like the, the route the message was going down, so they just tried to shut me down. Well, we've and seen your channel shut down, um, obviously you'll go fund me, basically... I've just been getting targeted, I've been getting targeted by the criminal fraternity in the city of Liverpool, basically, and the same the same individuals was attached to the William Moore firm, you know, who tried to kill me in 2004 with the incident with Craig Barker. That organisation, whilst I'm in custody, was still out, was still making money, was still getting powerful. Although William Moore went into custody, his, his graft, if you like, his, his organisation of drug dealers continued to make money for him. So when I've got out at the other side of my sentence and he's still in custody, hating on me, blaming me for his, his participation in the murder of Craig and why he's in jail. He went to jail because he killed a kid on the streets of Liverpool, nothing to do with me. But I've got out and his organisation was intent on shutting me down instantly. And that's what I've been dealing with since. What do you want from life now, Darren? Freedom, peace of mind and somewhere to live with my son. Mm. How does it feel like when you hold your son, you're hanging out with your son? It's difficult for me because um, it's, it's going to sound bad, but I, don't, I didn't... I, I've brought him into a life that's not going to be good for him because of what I've done. And it's sort of... It, it, but when, I'm, when I've got him, it brings a new source of energy to me. It distracts me from all the bullshit. But that's when I've got him. But don't you think because you've turned your life around and you're inspiring so many people, that's the energy that he's been born into? Yeah. Yeah, in the same sense. But as I say... Uh, the, that organisation that's been targeting me for such a long time, they've got children, they've got kids, you know, little Quintus has got my name, G name, so it's not a positive start for them. If I continue, I continue to thrive and make something of myself, become a successful businessman, to help the charity, to help the kids in Liverpool, but to help my own child, that's, that's all I can do whilst I'm still breathing, basically. Uh- your positive focus you send out positive you'll get positive back yeah i don't know that. that that's what I'm, I'm a firm yeah. believer in what you put out you get back and that's all i've been doing for five years trying to redeem the actions of 2004 on that road of redemption i'm not here to kid no one manipulate no one or deceive no one i'm a genuine man who's trying to look out for the youth in the city of liverpool why because i love my city of liverpool and the obvious problem in my eyes and i'll continue to scream it are the drug dealers you know, they're destroying the infrastructure of the city, they're destroying the reputation, they're destroying the morals, and most importantly, they're destroying the children's environments, which is creating... It's just creating a fucking 
a bomb waiting to climax if you if you understand what I mean. It's disgusting. And you're on the good side, and the, you know society's going to be behind you when you're like that. Mm. Well, well, I'm on the good side, and there's there's a lot of good people that are that are encouraging me to continue. There's a lot of good people that's popping into my life and helping me as much as they can. But there's been a lot of people that's come into my life that shit on me. There's been some people that's come in my life that's been intimidated by the rats that's been trying to cancel me out. So it's been a very difficult, lonely six years, to be honest. Very, very difficult. So we've been on YouTube for a while, but now we're learning a lot about live streams and <laughs> going around the country from you. You've become a trail, the trailblazer of live streams. Well, I'm just doing, I'm just enjoying, I'm, I'm basically, I'm like a boy, just just enjoying his childhood again. I've missed out on an awful lot that you all take for granted. Well, you've been going on your hikes with uh, Lady yeah. G. Well, that's, 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 that's me just getting out of a room that I've been incarcerated in for so long. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to enjoy my life. During all the bullshit that's going on, the attempts of my life, the homelessness, the not eating, the psychological damage that's happening to me because of this bullshit, I'm still achieving little things. Mm. You know, I'm still moving forward. I'm still progressing. I'm reaching goals that I set. I haven't reached the big goals yet, but every big goal needs to be worked towards, and that's what I'm doing, working towards the big goals. Jen knows I religiously go bed at 11 because of my work <laughs> ethic. And, I, you know, I was about to go bed the other night, turn my phone on, and it's a, it's a Darren G Live. He's got a wig on, he's got, he's got sunglasses. He's got a wig on, sunglasses, Oasis. He's dancing around this room. And I was there, man, till midnight, till you signed off that one. I just could not stop watching it, but the vibe in the chat. Everyone's like, that's, is... all, that's all I'm trying to do, man. Share the love, spread the energy that I've got, because it's a powerful source of energy you've got. <sighs> and I'm not going to keep it to myself. I'm trying to... There's a lot of people right now who are very down, unsure about where they're going in life, just like me, just like I was. And it's quite difficult to be pulled out of them holes. And if there's someone like me on your screen that can make you laugh for an hour... I was pissed um, myself. That's what I mean. If there's someone like me that's willing to scream and shout and it doesn't matter what the consequences are or what people are going to label them, I'm willing to do that. Now, people write me off, he's got mental health conditions, so what? Everybody's got mental health conditions. That's what I'm saying. So what if he has? The bottom line is, I'm true. I'm not. I'm not here to deceive no one. I'm just being me. I'm enjoying my life away from the justice system and away from all them circles of negative energy. So you either love me or hate me. I'm like Marmite. The majority of love me. The majority of criminals hate me, but they still relate to what I'm saying because they've got kids and they understand the future their kids are growing up in. Definitely. So I know you live in the moment, but like 10 years from now, ideally, where would you like to see yourself? Just parked up in a, in a, in a normal dwelling with my son, taking him to school, basically, educating him, protecting him from the, the extreme shit. dangers that's coming, coming all our way. I see what's going on at the moment, yeah. I can see what's going I, I, I was seeing what's going on now five years ago, and I was screaming about it five years ago. 2018, if you watch that documentary, my narrative hasn't changed. I've been telling you what the problem is in our community since 2018, 2016, when I first started in custody. I've not changed my narrative. I'm here, I'm a real individual. I'm promoting this message of Kalnach UK, and it's there to try and raise the awareness of parents and the children on what not to get involved in because if we let the kids continue to be influenced by drug dealing scumbags we've got no future in the city of Liverpool and I think men up and down the land can relate to what I'm saying there doesn't matter if you're not from Liverpool it could be Manchester, London, Wales, Glasgow, Ireland it doesn't matter I think I think there's a lot of strong working men that can relate to where I'm coming from here with this. It's definitely resonating. And if yeah. you want to support Darren, we're going to have the link to his YouTube channel in the description box, his TikTok, all his other links. And I'm going to try and get the link for Kind as well out of Waver Tree because it sounds like they're doing really it's good work. It's a very, very powerful... We should give a visit, shouldn't we? Do a little, little video it's there. A very, it's run by a Mr. Stephen Kip. He's a very, very sincere scouser. It's a powerful organisation. If you're looking to fund anything in the city of Liverpool, it needs to be kind charity because the amount of children he is helping up and down the city is massive. Definitely. 
Brilliant, Darren. All right. right. Thanks, Thanks Jen. Yeah, cheers, lad. Oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> right, are we going to do live then? <laughs> yeah, let's do live. <laughs> well, you, don't, you don't have to if you don't want to. Oh, of course, course I, I do. do. Here at Boomer and Jen... We offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Gen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on Organic Cotton Clothing dot co dot uk